the history in Polyam and Pau's podcast in association with the History Corner dot org podcasts articles reviews greetings must not get one's knickers in a twist. Hello and welcome to the History Emporium and Powers podcast. I'm joined by one of my favourite Belfast natives, Patty. Patrick is a history teacher, husband, father and now one of my regular guests. Patty has also written for thehistorycorner.org. He insists on calling these lessons, so I'm embracing the title. On that note, hello Patrick and what is our lesson about today? Hello Oliver. Uh, Thank you for having me, of course. It is always lovely coming on the podcast. Our lesson today is on the Essex whaling disaster. Now, this is the story of 21 sailors whose ship was attacked by a sperm whale in the Pacific Ocean, almost the furthest away from land you could possibly be on the planet. So eight men survived, but only after starvation cannibalism and the most miraculous rescue that sounds incredible you've already said sperm and cannibalism within the first five seconds of this <laughs> this podcast i'm in i'm in um, right I've, I've got you hooked in yeah brilliant. absolutely absolutely would you would you do, do a lesson about sperm whales and uh, cannibalism at school just off the cuff hmm I mean, it depends. You're, you're really you're you're opening up yourself to a lot of behaviour issues there. Mm. Um, but then, equally, you know, if the story is like this lesson uh, is really more about the human spirit and the world economy, then uh, then perhaps you could get away with it. Yeah. Well, listen. Perhaps maybe before the end of the year. You know, this year is is obviously a bit mad with. Uh, distance learning etc maybe i'll try and teach a lesson on it and i'll let you know how it goes oh, after do. this lesson of course do of course yeah i can be the guinea pig um or yeah. the sperm yeah. whale see what I did there. <laughs> um i so, don't see what you did there so why why are we talking about the essex whaling disaster today it is just i find the most bizarre story so People generally, we've got this cultural awareness of the story Moby Dick, where Captain Ahab goes uh, looking for revenge for a sperm whale that attacked his ship in the past. So this story inspired uh, Melville to write the famous novel. And um, the story, even if we begin at the end, right, we're in the year 1821, a British ship called India was sailing in the Pacific Ocean, and they almost bumped into a little rowboat with a ragged sail. The sides of it had been built up by about 15, 20 centimetres. And when they looked into the boat, these British sailors saw two men, almost naked. You know, the salt water and spray had eroded most of their clothes off. They had long hair, long beards, and they were both gnawing on the bones of their dead shipmates. Whoa. And as the two uh, as the two whalers looked up at the British sailors who were rescuing them, they almost kept the bones to themselves, not out of shame, but almost like thinking primarily that these other people were going to steal their bones off them. 
And the chances of this rescue are, are just minuscule. They are so unbelievably small. This, the Pacific Ocean is, you know, obviously just the largest mass of water on the planet and to come across granted in a shipping lane but it's not like a 2021 shipping lane we're talking 200 years ago to come across a sailing vessel uh, in such a vast expanse of water uh, it's just a, a phenomenal rescue and this story just has so many fascinating parts to it for example why was a ship from Nantucket, which is a small Quaker island off New England what was it doing in the Pacific Ocean uh, well, they were hunting sperm whales. Why were they hunting sperm whales? And the oil from sperm whales was a huge part of the global economy before electricity was invented. Um, but then within that, we've got the complexity of, complexities of leadership, of teamwork, uh, the good parts of the human human mind and human actions, but also the pretty grim ones as well. So I just think this story has it all. I find it absolutely fascinating. And Throughout the 1800s, this became one of those stories and the legends that almost brought the young American Republic together. You know how every country, every nation needs those stories mm. that, that sort of bind people? Yeah. This, this story played that role for a lot of Americans in the, in the 1800s and largely has been kind of lost to time. Well, now I say that, a movie came out a couple of years ago of this, but um, I just haven't watched it. <laughs> in a really nerdy way I love the book too much mm. I, and I know how pretentious that sounds and I hate myself for saying it but um, yeah I don't want to watch it I didn't even recall the movie coming out and I'm quite a movie buff and I, I don't ever recall hearing about it um, I mean the, 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 the real tale itself just it just sounds so unbelievably like fictional doesn't it when mm. it's amazing mm. that it's it's real so um uh i am gonna slaughter this pronunciation um <laughs> why is nantucket a whaling island i think you've got the pronunciation right uh, the only time i've heard anyone say it is bart simpson when he begins a rhyme Nantucket, and then I think Homer or Marge shouts at him. So I think we've got it right. Should we just go with Nantucket, Nantucket and then our American yeah. listeners can scold us if, if needs be, and we mm. apologise if, if we're saying it wrong. So Nantucket is the small Quaker island, as I said, off the coast of New England. And it's, um, I mean, as with any part of North America, there used to be... Um, Lots of Native Americans living on the island, mm. and then uh, that stopped being the case. Uh, unfortunately, they were uh, Wampanoag, I, I, I think. I mean, I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. Um, so essentially, this island was, uh, you know, it was uh, planted, I guess, settled by, uh, by Europeans, and they were almost all Quakers. So they were Christians who believed exclusively in uh, in peace, I guess, and not conducting warfare. Yet they hunted sperm whales in the most aggressive and horrendous of ways. Double standards. Double standards, absolutely. Um, now, these Quakers on the island had the most amazing surnames. Starbuck, Coffin, 
Bunker, Nickerson, you know, those almost old English names. Mm. Uh, Starbuck, of course, makes us think of something else. But without the second S on there, it's uh, it, it's 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 a lovely name to, to mm. say. It's like Roebuck, so, isn't it? It just makes the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So essentially, Quakers went onto this island and within a century of living there, they had... I mean, this sounds quite aggressive in my notes. They had killed the local population. Uh, oh, I mean, sorry, I've read my notes wrong. No, it's fine. They've killed the local whaling population. <laughs> I mean, sorry, we're recording this after a long week. They killed the local population of whales. Of course it's aggressive. But um, essentially there's a story that as the first uh, settlers to Nantucket were trying to farm this sort of awful land that you couldn't grow anything bar potatoes on. An old man lit his pipe and, you know, wistfully stared into the ocean at some sperm whales playing and sort of spouting up water through their blowholes. I want to know how mm. you find out that there is oil in whales and then what you can use that for powering sort of machinery and electricity or whatever, like pre-electricity. Right. Okay, gotcha. So sperm whales are called sperm whales because the oil in their heads looks like, shall we say, seminal fluid. So... <laughs> that was the it's... most polite way I've ever heard anyone say it. Yeah, okay. Well, you, you can tell I'm a teacher, can't you? Mm. <laughs> Don't say the buzzword. So that's a really good point. Well, because before electricity came along, People were using candles or you would use lamps. Now, the oil from a sperm whale would burn really, really clearly. So this was the oil that you would want to put in your lamp. And it didn't give off any smoke. You know, if you were conducting some work in winter evenings, you're doing some writing or reading, it was the oil for you. Or if you were taking your lamp out and you were inspecting something in the dark, it was the oil that you wanted. So people who could afford to buy good oil for their lamps would buy sperm whale oil. So I guess it came about through people just experimenting. How do you experiment with the oil of a massive dead whale? Well, I think like uh, like the Nantucketers, when they saw whales sort of playing in, in the bay in Nantucket, they... I don't... They, they thought we'd stop this fun immediately and we'll kill we're them We're Quakers. All. We're ultimately peaceful. Let's hack one to death. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a really good question, Ollie. And um, I like how it's your second question on the podcast. And ultimately, my answer is, I don't know. Well, one for Google. One for... You, yeah, can't, you, one. Can't, you can't know everything. I can't expect you to know everything. Um, although I will be writing to your school um, and letting them know you have yeah um, absolutely ultimately once again let myself down yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely so absolutely leads me quite nicely onto my next question so why why were these hunted was it for their oil yeah it was pretty much for their oil so what would happen is uh you would uh, you would so the sperm whales were generally very docile they were these creatures who would uh the females and the children would live together in these pods. Uh, the males would sort of go between pods. The males were were, were loners, but generally they, they were quite docile. They never saw humans as a threat, which of course makes the attack on the ship, the Essex, so absolutely bizarre. Mm. And um, what would happen is that you would get really up close to a sperm whale in one of these rowboats and uh, you would harpoon the, the whale 
and uh, you would essentially hold on sometimes for hours as the sperm whale would uh, thrash and travel for as far as it possibly could before it ran out of energy and then the whalers would just bit by bit pull themselves towards the whale uh, and then they had essentially another type of harpoon which had a really sharp spade on the end of it and they would repeatedly stab the whale until they hit its heart and then at this stage when the blowhole of the whale started to spit out small fish and squid and its own vomit and blood etc that's when they knew that the whale was dying and uh, once the whale had died they would then pull the whale back to their ship and then they would it's been described kind of like peeling an orange just pulling off all the layers of fat from the whale's head so sperm whale's head is massive it's a really wonderful beautiful image isn't it they would so they would take off the yeah all of the oil from the whale but once the it's called spermaceti believe it or not this oil from the whale (laughs) once that hit the air it started to harden so then they would boil on the ship's deck all of the all of the oil then they would put it into barrels and then just store it so the ships were almost like sailing factories as well as you know sailing living quarters mm. and uh, and things like that and these uh, the people from Nantucket because the, the farmland was pretty much awful on the island they put all of their focus in into whaling mm. and as they expanded as they expanded out they killed their local population of whales and went right the way down the Atlantic over really not that long a time, only about 60 years before they had to round the Cape, as uh, sailors say, and go up into the Pacific Ocean mm. and, and hunt whales there. And, you know, these voyages could last two, three, sometimes four years. So and I'm going to put you on the spot again now. Do you, look, was there mm. any, um, uh, like, uh, could you get food out of this as well? Or was it purely the oil? No, it was just purely, purely oil. The so the carcass would just be left to waste, I guess. Yeah, the carcass would just would just float off. Now, weirdly, mm. when we look back, if this essentially the vomit of sperm whales today is worth twenty thousand pounds per liter because it's used for uh, for really high end uh, perfumes and aftershaves. So. Uh, it, the, yeah, I know. There, there's a, there was a story a couple of months ago of a Thai fisherman who found just a huge pile of sperm whale vomit floating in the sea, I think, in the Indian Ocean. And he sold it for millions. Made his absolute fortune. There is so, something seriously wrong with the world. I know, I know. Isn't there? Isn't there? So, uh, so no, really, I mean, life on a ship, they would have what was called hard tack, which is kind of like a bread or a biscuit mixed together. As the ship uh, sailed out to the Azores and the Atlantic, they would buy pigs, they would buy vegetables. So these ships from Nantucket, as they sailed south and up into the Pacific, they'd find a couple of whales Mm. before they went into the Pacific Ocean. But they would stop really uh, as many times as they needed to, maybe two, three, four times where they could buy vegetables. Uh, They might need to get their ship repaired. Uh, They would buy, weirdly, pigs. They would buy a lot of pigs, so that the pigs would just roam the ship, and then when they wanted to, they would, they would kill them, uh, and and eat them. So mm, they sound like a really answer. peaceful bunch. 
Isn't it weird? Now, here's the odd thing about Nantucket. Because it was a Quaker island, mm. obviously they were incredibly peaceful humans, but there was this idea that you would never spend your profits. So they were phenomenal business people. Mm. So the, all of the profits of these uh, of these ship owners were sort of ploughed back into the ships. Um, but a an incredibly wealthy island, uh, and it was one of the wealthiest towns in America at this time in, in the 1820s, sort of pre-American Industrial Revolution. But I think that mm. shows us how much wealth they had. But almost nobody in the island had seen a wheel. So all of this profit was flooding into the island from something that was just like a far off, a far off idea, you know? Ignorance is bliss and all that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it created this weird society on Nantucket where the island was not run by women, but women played more of an important daily role Mm. on Nantucket than they did for most parts in most parts of the planet. Um, Because not only were so many of the men off whaling, but... There were lots of the men that died when they were out mm. whaling because sperm whales are really aggressive when they're attacked. I suppose which animal isn't? But um, yeah. so the it was really kind of the women, children, and uh, ship owners who, who were on the island. Of course, there would be people who work in you know the service industry on the island, but it was just totally obsessed with uh, with whaling. I mean, there's there's you know bits of evidence that maybe the women were smoking opium on the island and. Uh, and one, we don't really know, um, but uh, it was just one of these uh, one of these odd places that, uh, as soon as electricity was invented, then the sperm whale oil industry just uh, just absolutely collapsed. Um, now the people who went on the ships, you know, a cabin boy who was the very lowest, to be a teenager of about fourteen, fifteen, mm-hmm. was paid one two hundredth of the profits after expenses. A captain would have got one. 32nd, one over 32 anyway, um, of the profit. And the owners got a return of about 25 to 40% on, on each voyage. Mm. So it was a terrible wage. But for Nantucketers, this was like, this was a rite of passage. You would work your way up to eventually be a captain. So really, you would get paid a terrible wage, less than people in factories would. But you got somewhere to live for two years, you gained experience, etc. Yeah. I suppose if you, um, with sort of new colonies etc you've kind of got to start from somewhere haven't you i guess mm. so mm. um obviously there were people living there prior to to the colonies being there but mm. yeah i guess that actually having that um system in place sort of made them uh, sort of more prosperous in the long run yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and th- and then you've got this odd thing where um, not everyone from... Essentially, there was more demand for workers, so you couldn't exclusively have Nantucketers on, on your ship. Mm-hmm. So on this ship, there on the Essex, there were 21 men all in all. But there were seven black sailors on there. Okay. They were paid the same. They were treated as equals to the whites uh, day to day, but they lived in a separate part of the ship. So there was this weird thing at sea that... Although the man next to you doesn't matter what the color of his skin is, if you're hunting whales, you're hunting whales. Mm. So there was this weird thing that every captain would treat everyone the same, yet all the black sailors lived at the front of the ship. Uh, now, as we'd say in Ireland, it was the place in the ship that was the best crack because the the captain and the officers, their bedrooms were nowhere near this place. So they'd mm. sort of go and have, have fun and games there and they'd uh, sing uh, hymns and 
you know, do these religious readings and whatnot. But essentially, it's this uh, this odd idea that there was when we think that slavery was well, most of its peak in America in a, in a horrendously racist society. There was still uh, obviously not, not equality, of course, like they were literally in another part of the ship. But there was um, this recognition that that if you're a whaler, uh, you're a whaler. I yeah. guess. So it's kind of like a a, a family, or a, yeah. work, a work family, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, so I mean, we've we've talked about what life was like on the whaling ship. So, on the this this specific event. So, what what happened on the journey, like before the whale attack? Well, the journey. I mean, here's the mad thing. The journey started in 1819 and the whale attacked in 1821. Oh, so wow. Like the, wow. Yeah, so you've got that. You'd, you'd commit yourself for years for tiny, tiny bits of profit. Mm. Now, on the journey, there's a really interesting episode which happened, I think, four days into the journey and it involves it involved the captain and the first mate. Now, the captain was a 28-year-old called George Pollard. He was patient, he was calm, he was small, he was stout. He never swore. And uh, his first mate, who was like the deputy captain, I guess, was a man called Owen Chase. And he was 22. Now, he was demanding, he was ambitious, he was tall for the time, 5 foot 10, he was strong. And he was described by a cabin boy on the ship, Thomas Thomas Nickerson, who uh, was 15 when when he uh, signed up. He was described as a bully and, and whatnot. Mm. But their leadership styles were totally different. And actually, had Chase, who was the first mate, had he been the captain, perhaps this wouldn't have turned into cannibalism and drifting on the high seas. Perhaps he would have made better decisions than Pollard. But essentially, uh, four days into the the trip, most of the men actually weren't sailors and they were meant to sail this hugely complicated (laughs) ship, which had 20 sails all in all, massively, massively difficult to sail. So you had about half of the crew could sail and the rest were just following instructions and they sailed into a storm. It almost sunk the ship. The ship had almost capsized on its side. Uh, They lost one of their whaling rowboats and uh, once they settled the ship, Pollard said, listen, we need to go back to Nantucket for repairs. But Chase, being, you know, this, uh, it seems like a really proud man, just wouldn't do it. Mm. So he forced the captain just to continue on. So they continued on on the trip, even though they'd lost loads of their food, they'd lost a, a whaling boat. And he said, listen, captain, we'll, we'll just find another whaling boat somewhere along the way. Uh, so the journey was a, a quite uh, memorable from the start. But uh, they went to the Galapagos, and this is where it gets just bizarre, right? So they would stop at the Galapagos Islands, where you would capture tortoises. So all whaling ships would stop. They would go around the archipelago, and they would collect between about 150 and 200 giant tortoises. And uh, they would just keep them for food. So these animals, these tortoises, can live for a year without food or water. So... They're almost the perfect thing to collect mm. for a whaling ship. And um, what they would do is they would just park the ship, dock the ship, uh, get into their little rowboats, go onto the island and just have competitions as to who could uh, could carry as many of these giant tortoises I mean, as possible. I they're huge, back. aren't they? Absolutely huge. Yeah. 
They had one which was 275 kilograms that uh, the two teenagers carried back. But now here's something that's mad. When they left the island, a whaler named Thomas Chappell, as a prank, he was like 19 and thought it was hilarious, um, set a fire to like scare the other men uh, on the island. So there's no humans there Mm. on, on the Galapagos. So we set a fire just for the crack, really, you know, but it actually engulfed the entire island, destroyed all of the species on it. And it was only 15 years later that Darwin sailed to the island and noted the effects of a really mysterious fire. And in Darwin's notes was like, it doesn't seem that nature would just start a fire like this. This is totally bizarre. <laughs> um, it was someone yeah. playing a prank. Yeah, it was a just really this 19 year old who thought it was hilarious. Yeah. What a clown. So, I know, I know. So, I mean, th- this guy, Thomas Chapel, must have killed, I mean, countless numbers of species. And as we, isn't the whole thing with the Galapagos that each species on each island is slightly different to the other ones? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, um, he got totally dressed down by, uh, by the captain who swore at him, which is like this massive big deal for Pollard because he didn't swear. Um, but this was it, essentially. The, um, so they'd gone to the Galapagos, they got 180 tortoises, and these would just walk around the ship, and they would just pot around. The men would sort of, uh, I don't know, just pet them as they go past. And, you know, when they wanted to supplement their diets, they would they, they would just eat, eat one of these tortoises. And um, they, were doing, they were doing quite well on, on this voyage. By the time they'd sailed past the... Uh, Galapagos Island. They were capturing capturing one whale every five days, which mm. was really impressive. They'd got hardly any in the Atlantic, but as they sailed out towards, I suppose Hawaii would be most people's frame of reference in the yeah. Pacific Ocean. They were doing quite well. It would take about three days to fully process all the oil from a whale, and then finally we get to the attack. Now they were. 1,500 miles west of the Galapagos. They were 40 miles south of the equator. And essentially, they were four weeks of sailing from the Galapagos Islands. And uh, there was a number of whales in the area. So the three whaling boats were lowered down and most of the crew set off. And the ship was left with uh, three men on it. And uh, Thomas Nickerson... The 15-year-old, who had written in his diary that the second mate, Owen Chase, was a bit of a bully, Mm. took the helm of the ship. And this must have been amazing. You know, to be 15 Mm. and to actually steer your your ship. And he thought, I'll sail towards the captain. You know, so maybe the captain, if he comes back to the ship, he'll see me, you know, steering it. Mm. And about 20, well, let me see, about, sorry, 200 metres away, they saw a massive black sperm whale, the biggest they'd ever seen. It was 25% larger than any of the others. It was about the size of a swimming pool. Uh, now, no whale today, no sperm whale today could be that big. But we know through looking through the log books of Nantucket or whalers, we know that whales this size did exist back then. And um, this whale was behaving really weirdly. Because normally whales would just ignore humans, but it stayed still watching the ship Mm. just floating on the water while puffing through its blowhole. And then it charged and it uh, went as fast as it possibly could and then smacked into the side of the ship and uh, floated lifeless for a few minutes. And the men were 
were pushed back, they had fallen over, uh, water was rushing in to, uh, to the hull of the ship. But it could just about, they thought, right, if we get everyone back, we can just about mend this. This isn't a disaster. But then the whale swam half a kilometre away, turned round and attacked again. And no it, so it took a 500 metre run up, essentially, <laughs> crashed in, not head on to the ship, but just at like uh, sort of side on, but at the front and kept pushing and pushing until it pushed the whole ship backwards. And then it dislodged itself and, and swam off. And they never saw the whale again. It had, it had behaved in the most bizarre... This had never happened. Never happened in decades of, uh, of the whole sperm whale industry. And the ship was sinking. They were... Sorry, go on, yeah. I was going to say, so once the whale had attacked and swam away, mm. like what, did, what did they do? Well, they... Well, they totally panicked. They were almost as far from land as anywhere on Earth. A sailor called William Bond quickly sprinted to grab compasses, quadrants, maps, anything that would be of use communication-wise. And before the ship, or before the whale attacked, the first mate, Owen Chase, he had been hammering nails into the side of the ship just to demand a few things, you know, just generally working while other people were off hunting. And he may have accidentally communicated with the wheel. So the, the man would say that when you were sleeping, you could hear the, the, the wheels communicating with each other in the distance, but it sounded like someone hammering. So oh, the, okay. the man would have these crazy dreams that someone was hammering on the side of the ship. So perhaps, I mean, it's a theory that biologists don't, but it, it can't be discounted, but it certainly can't be proven. No. That um, they they may have really offended this wheel. It's a good, um, it's a good, good story though. It is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So they may have accidentally insulted the wheel. Um, <laughs> but listen, they they grabbed uh, six hundred pounds of hardtack, more fresh water than they could safely hold in their little rowboats, six tortoises, two hogs, two pistols, a musket, and and some nails, and. Uh, the men in the whaling ships were, were coming back. One of them was towing a dead whale and they saw their ship on its side and they were just speechless, mm. absolutely speechless. So all of the men spent the first night attached to the remains of the ship. They ripped up the sails and made little masts for the rowboats. They built up the side to the rowboats, which undoubtedly saved their lives. So it stopped too much water coming in to spoil their food. And then it didn't. It meant that they didn't have to bail out any water and so waste energy. So their rowboats were 7.5 metres long. They were designed for rough seas and they were designed to take a few hits from, from sperm whales. So they just spent this, this time in shock and decided to come up with their plan. So they've made these boats, or not mm. made them, they're on these boats... So what was daily life like on them? Oh, I mean, this was... Well, once they were in the boats, and they were in the boats for 92 days, well, that's for in in two of the boats anyway, you would do shifts. You would either bail water out, because there was always water coming in, uh, or you would steer, or you would just sit there and just... Not relax, but just contemplate <laughs> contemplate what was happening to you. Get a suntan. 
Yeah, get a suntan, yeah. But they started to become covered in boils mm, really quickly okay. on their skin because of the salt water. Um, now, like I said before, when the captain and the first mate had their argument four days into the voyage, this showed the two different personalities of Pollard and Chase. Mm. So Chase, the, uh, the bully, headstrong, ambitious bully, he was the guy that you would have wanted in charge. Because he was someone who would just make a quick decision. He wanted to sail west. Mm. He wanted to go to uh, these islands. But uh, the rest of the men had heard that they were filled with cannibals. Uh, Now, almost all sailors who sailed the Pacific knew that they weren't. But Nantucketers would only believe what other Nantucketers had experienced. So they wouldn't listen to British or French or Spanish or... Chilean or whatever sailors they wanted to experience things for themselves. So uh, eventually the crew decided, uh, convinced Pollard not to go west. Uh, And then Pollard thought and thought and thought and eventually decided... When you just said go west then, I just really wanted to sing that Pet Shop Boys song. Did you know that's where the song comes from? They actually started to sing that. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) I almost had... You almost had me there. I was like, really? No way. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah. sorry. Not well, the no, pet shop boys. The on the boats that we know of. That no. we know of. Um, now the nearest islands uh, would have been uh, Tahiti. So okay. had they have got to Tahiti, they would have been absolutely fine. They could have got there easily. Um, Pollard wanted to go there, but uh, was overruled by Chase and uh, and and some of the crew. Um, but they decided to sail for South America. But the problem was the wind was blowing from South America generally towards them. So the favourable winds would take you towards Australia, Japan, Tahiti. Yeah. But they didn't take this option. So they divided themselves into into three boats. Now, Pollard insisted that his 18-year-old cousin, Owen Coffin, and Owen Coffin's two best friends were to come with him. Okay. And now we'll come back to them later because this did not end well. Now, they had their three boats. They all agreed they would stay together for morale, navigation purposes. And when they eventually figured out the mathematics of the food, each man would get 170 grams of bread and 300 milliliters of water a day. Now, this is a quarter of what they biologically needed. So... And that's biologically, that's the minimum. So this isn't like men on a boat, like working. This Mm. is the bare, bare minimum. So even in the best case scenario, if they reach South America in 60 days, they would look, they would look like total emaciated humans. So the best case scenario was that they would almost starve to death. And now psychologically then, the men all relive the trauma of the attack Mm. and they just kept picturing it and trying to think what they could have done differently they clearly had like a really intense PTSD but then after a week the men all involuntarily began to hold each other and almost not let go so like like young children Mm. they you know they went from being these you know uh, stoic sailors to men who who just when they weren't bailing onto ship just held each other and yeah, hugged. Yeah, trauma, isn't it? Trauma. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, as I said before, they developed these painful sores. And now, weirdly, then an orca attacked one of the boats out of nowhere. It started to bite the side of one of the boats. And you're thinking, like, oh, for God's sake, really? These, um, 
uh, sea life creatures were not pleased that these people no. were there. No. To be fair, I'm still on the whale side at the moment. Um, mm. not I that, think so. Mm, yeah, so. Yeah. I mean, if I was that whale, like, good for him. Yeah. Yeah, getting mm. revenge. Like, these men at this stage had killed probably about 15 to 20 fellow sperm whales. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, no. So, yeah, so we're starting to see the sea creatures, and that's just not it. So an orca attacked and bit one of the boats, and then a school of dolphins, or a pod of dolphins, I don't know, the collective nine, followed them for the whole day. For a whole day, just really? played around the boats. Yeah, wow. yeah. And the men were now too weak to pierce the skin of dolphins or the orca that, that, that attacked them. Mm. And... Um, as time went on, the bread that they were eating was becoming more and more saturated with salt. Yeah. So the men were starting to go crazy because their kidneys were taking additional fluid from around their bodies. And they would, in desperation, kill one of their tortoises, drink its blood, you know, cook it on a fire. The fire being like the barbecue was the shell of the tortoise. Um, they started to drink their own pee. After three weeks, their food rations were cut in half and then their mouths started to dry out. Their tongues all became like dead weights and mm. speech became incredibly difficult. And it looked like this this whole project was just going to fail. They weren't going to get to South America. And suddenly, after one month at sea, they saw an island. The island was six miles by three miles. And, uh, of course, they were going crazy, so they all had to convince each other that they were seeing the same thing. They got onto the island, they found some crabs, they found some birds, they found a spring of fresh water, but it was only accessible at very low tides. Um, they stayed there for five days, and they, in those five days, they exhausted, well, practically exhausted, the entire bird population. And this had taken ancient ancestors 400 years, and they did it in five days. Wow. Now, unbeknownst to them, in a cave, a stone's throw from where they were all sleeping, there were eight skeletons of people, including a child about three years old, of mm. people who had starved to death on the island before them. And uh, after a week on the island... The birds started to uh, the birds started to act oddly, and it looked like they were essentially starving the birds of their food supply. And the birds were trying to get off the island, so the men thought, "Well, we need to go." Apart from three teenagers, three men who weren't from Nantucket, they decided to stay on the island, and they just said, "Listen, if we're going to die, we'd just rather die on on dry land." And uh, on Boxing Day. 1821, uh, the three boats sailed off and the three men just decided to stay, didn't wave goodbye. They just uh, hunkered together, sharing the remains of a dead bird as uh, what they thought were the last humans they would ever see sailed off into the distance. Mm, that's a picture, isn't it, in your mind? Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Like, it, seems, it just seems unbelievable, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It's just the fact that they survived. Um, mm. So they were on an island called Henderson Island. And um, the plan was still just to get to the South American coast. And this is where we, we've gone for, you know, dehydration, craziness, 
drinking the blood of tortoises, three men staying on an island which couldn't support a population of 21 men. And then one week out from Henderson Island, there was the first death. So a 27-year-old named Matthew Joy, I said they're great surnames, asked to be put in the captain's boat. And the captain's boat was filled with Nantucketers and he wanted to die among his own people. So he spent three days with the captain and with his friends and then felt guilty that he, he had actually been the sort of mini-captain, I guess, of his, of his robo. So mm-hmm. as to be put back with his men. And then he was dead. He was dead within hours. And they tied a stone to him, said a few prayers and put him out to sea. And sort of sunk his sunk his body down. So that was the first death. That was the first death. And now a twenty one year old named Thomas Chapel took over the command of Joy's boat, and he found that Joy, as he was dying, uh, hadn't hadn't kept an eye on all the food, and there was only enough food for three more days. And then that very day, Owen Chase's boat became separated from the other two. And then one day after that, the next man died. And he was a 60-year-old man. It was a black man called Richard Peterson. Mm. And he had kept the spirits of everyone together. He would sing these beautiful songs to mm. them. He would. He knew the Bible really well. So we would tell them, you know, stories of hope and deliverance. He was essentially their, their priest, their, yeah. their pastor. He died. And... Uh, Ten days later, another sailor died. He was another black man called Lawson Thomas. And uh, at this point, the conversation was had. Now, Ollie, can you guess what conversation was? Well, I was just about to ask that. So the discussions about eating their shipmates, Mm. cannibalism. Mm. Cannibalism. And the discussion went pretty much as I think any discussion in this situation goes. It's a reluctant yes. So if you or I, right, as, uh, as healthy young men in our 30s, mm. if we were to die and be eaten, we'd provide about 60 pounds of healthy meat between our organs and our muscles. That's what you or I would provide. Okay. But these men were all dying of starvation so they provided half of that so by even the act of eating one of their fellow shipmates they were not getting anywhere near the nutrition that they needed and of course there's the problem that if you're eating meat your stomach needs water to develop the juices to digest the meat Mm -hmm. so even the act of eating becomes incredibly painful um and uh, but yeah, listen. His crew decided to cut cut up, slice up the muscles, extract the organs of Lawson Thomas, and and eat him. That's not an easy conversation to have, I'm guessing. No. Um, although they've been through hell and high water, literally by the sounds of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and now, interestingly, there's a there's a, a story of a an Argentinian rugby team whose plane crashed when they were travelling over the Andes. And they, before they were rescued or engineered their own rescue, they ate some of their teammates. But the agreement that these men came to, this was in the 1970s, was that two men would slice up the dead bodies, but they would never tell anyone 
who they were eating. They wouldn't slice up the relatives of any of the players or any of the men, you know, in this team. Mm. And they would never see, they would never let anyone see them do it. So psychologically, that seems kind of sensible, doesn't it? That you're given meat and you can almost convince yourself that this mm. is not someone you know. But if you're on a small rowboat, which is 7.5 metres long... You're going to know who they are. Y- yeah, or, yeah, exactly. And you're going to know what part of your friend you're reading. Mm. And realistically, I can imagine anyway, as you're reading, you're thinking, God, am I next? Am I going to be... Is my, is my arm yeah, going to be yeah. the next arm that someone's going to be eating? It's, it's, it's horrendous. The thing is, by this point, they... Do you know what I mean? Their their um, tribal instincts, as they as they call them, have probably mm. kicked in. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, there's a phrase um, which uh, an Auschwitz survivor talked about mm. uh, in the 1950s, called "killing my feelings," uh, where in order to survive, you would do anything necessary. Uh, and another uh, death camp survivor talked about breaking every possible law to survive. And uh, that I think that that phrase, killing your feelings, mm. is, oh, it's horrendous, isn't it? Um, but, uh, sorry, just bear with me one moment. Ah, yes, if we could go back to Chase now, the bully. He's kind of gone full circle because he... Um, was on a boat with uh, three other people now. He was being driven crazy by dreams of food. Um, he said that he, he, he wrote it back afterwards, uh, you know, had to profit somehow. Of course. Um, and uh, he said that he would have these really vivid dreams where he would see his favourite food and lift it up and touch it and smell it. But as soon as he lifted it to his mouth, he would wake up and his mouth would generally be like sucking the side of the boat and uh, I know, so he was going crazy, but he changed his leadership style from what they called on Nantucket fishy man, you know, angry, aggressive, a bully, to cheerful and, and motherly. And he, he would tell his crew stories. He would tell them everything's going to be okay. He would hug them. And they said that he went from being this terrifying man to being their mother. And so he had this weird sort of, I mean, clearly a very intelligent man. Um, and the men in his boat said, listen, if it wasn't for him, they just wouldn't have made it. He was one of the two boats to have been rescued. But as he was uh, as he was changing his leadership style and slowly going crazy, then another man died on not the captain's boat, but the separate boat where it seemed that more of the men were dying. Now, psychologically, were the men dying on this boat because... They didn't have the family connections that the Nantucket guys had. They didn't have the same religion. We don't know. Um, we do know that the life expectancy for uh, black Americans at this time was considerably lower than for white Americans, mm. uh, you know, through diet and, and lifestyle. And, uh, you know, this isn't a podcast, of course, about American history, but I'm sure our listeners can uh, can fill in the blanks there. But um, on Hendrick's boat, another man died Uh he was eaten. And then the day after that, the only black man who was on Pollard's boat died. He was called Samuel Reed. But he was on Pollard's boat, the first person that they decided to eat. 
and uh, the men on this boat said that after this happened, they started to become wild because Pollard was not a man to really, I think, lead in the way that they needed. Mm -hmm. So he became quite distant. And the men felt that once they'd crossed that line of eating one of their shipmates, they just started to go just a little bit crazy. Mm, just they lost no respect for back, themselves. Really. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. You've done yeah. it now. And then, of course, uh, a few days later, the two remaining boats were separated. So all three boats were mm. totally separate from each other. There was no longer, you know, pulling together to say prayers in the evening. Mm. This was uh, this was Hail Mary time. Yeah, every every man for themselves or every boat for themselves. Exactly. Now, Ollie, are you ready for it to get even darker? Yes. Drawing lots. On Pollard's boat, they had a really honest conversation where they said, if it's the four of us, we're all going to die. But if we all gamble and essentially draw the short straw, they put names in a hat. Uh, then whoever's name comes out, would you... They discussed, would each of us take the the one in four chance that we might be shot in the head to feed the other three men? God. <laughs> so, weirdly, this was an accepted practice in shipwreck situations. It, of course, not, not accepted practice in the way of, you know... Uh, <laughs> Involvement. <the> <laughs> By the way, you may get shot in the head and we may yeah, you. Clause 34 is a little odd. You don't need to read it, but it was, you know, through tales that would be told in taverns and all this kind mm. of stuff. Now, I said to you earlier that Pollard insisted that his young 18-year-old cousin, 10 years younger than him, was uh, he requested of him and his boat. Oh, and of course, okay. whose name comes out of the hat? Oh. Pollard's cousin, mm. Owen Coffin. So Pollard desperately offered himself. I said, listen, I'm the captain, take me, do not take him. Because after all, if I survive this, I have to tell my auntie that not only did I kill her son, but I ate him. Oh, God. And then his best friend, so Owen Coffin's best friend, Charles Ramsdale, begged that he wanted to shoot him because he wanted to be do the duty by his friend. So Owen Coffin was given a pencil and some paper and wrote a letter to his mum. And he was shot with one of the pistols. Shot and eaten. So, I mean, it was, uh, um, I mean, on their boat, this is just the very, very worst case scenario. Um, a couple of days later, another man on the boat died after going crazy. And initially, no one wanted to eat him because they didn't want to become crazy. Um, but of course they did. And uh, as the three boats were sort of drifting off, it pretty much seemed to start in death. Owen Chase's boat in February, towards the end of February, they'd been attacked in November, they saw a sail. And it was a ship about seven miles away. And uh, they, they, they they caught up with the ship. They uh, were they were obviously in a rowboat, so they were quite quick. And uh, yeah, they, they were pulled on board. 
And it turned out that they had sailed two and a half thousand miles since the whale attacked them. Wow. And they were three days from Valparaiso in Chile. And that they were pulled on, they were given tapioca pudding, and the sailors all did a whip around. Uh, here's the mad thing, though, is that he, from this boat that was rescued, of course, the other boat, uh, Pollard's boat that I uh, talked about in uh, at the start of the podcast, at the start of the lesson, Oliver, <laughs> um, they were always suspected by, by sailors. And they were t- taken on board, but there was a case of like, well... You, you've clearly eaten your shipmates here, so how do we know that you guys aren't the aren't aggressors? But once they told their stories to to the captain, then then they were given uh, they were given really really good care. And on Pollard's boat, he was a boat that I talked about earlier. They were three hundred miles south. Day ninety four, they were sucking marrow out of their shipmates' dried bones. Oh, they were what? yeah, they were. Uh, <laughs> going in and out of consciousness they became so protective of the bones that they stuffed the finger and toe bones into their pockets and then they hit a ship and that's when they opened their eyes and saw faces and they were treated phenomenally well they were taken on board and uh, the story of course started to spread like wildfire among the shipping communities and eventually an Australian ship called the Surrey was found uh Kind of, I'd never considered that Surrey is close to Essex, and you know the two mm. the two English counties that the ships were named after. Anyway, they they went out to Henderson Island to see if the three other castaways were alive, and they were. Uh, Chapel, Weeks, and Wright were all on the island, and uh, they were sitting down to eat a tropical bird when they saw a ship in the distance, and only one of the men could swim, so he swam out to the boat. And they get rescued. Months later, though, the third rowboat washed up on an island called Ducey Island with four skeletons inside. So two out of three boats made it. The third boat did not. That's incredible. Isn't it just the most phenomenal story? Uh, Now, they had now had to go back to Nantucket. So Chase... Oh, and Chase got back first because uh, Pollard uh, became quite ill. He just, mm. when you've been in these situations, you can't put on body weight. So uh, it's quite difficult to, uh, you know, put yourself through a journey where you're traveling halfway across the world. Yeah. Now, in June, so it's at a couple of months after the, the men were rescued, a letter reached the island. And now Quakers do not show emotion in public, but there was crying in the streets mm. and only Pollard and Ramsdale were mentioned. So this the island was just thrown into chaos. The idea that uh, not only had, uh, had a sperm whale attacked a ship, but this was, a, this was an island full of sailors. They knew what happened in a shipwreck scenario. Mm. So Chase arrived to rejoicing. Dancing in the streets, singing. He discovered he had a 14-month-old daughter called Phoebe, which was his. Um, isn't that mad? Yeah. And he sort of, you know, walked down the street. And you, can, you, can, you can imagine his personality. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, people buying him drinks, all this sort of stuff. And he told his story. And two months later, Pollard arrived. And all of the streets were lined up. Nobody said a word. Because they knew 
that this guy wasn't walking to see his wife. This guy was walking to see his auntie. He went straight to his auntie's house. And, uh, I mean, isn't that just the most horrendous image? I haven't seen the movie, you haven't seen the movie, but if this scene isn't included, then, God damn, that director and scriptwriter. He went straight to his auntie Nancy's house. Uh, she didn't forgive him. She did not forgive him. The community did. In fairness now, the rest of the island did. But she yelled at him, saying, I gave you my son to take care of. And you... And not only did you kill him, but you ate him. him. Yeah. That's, yeah. That is fucked up, isn't it? It really, really is. Uh, now, Chase went on. <laughs> what but, happened to the guys? Bully, bully, <laughs> Sorry, do, do you have any questions at this point? No, I'll just say, but I've just referred to Chase as Bully Chase, although he's now a mm. mothering mm. figure, isn't he? The mothering leader. He wrote a book about the ordeal. He became a really successful captain, which isn't really that much of a surprise. Mm. He may have been the inspiration for Captain Ahab in, uh, Moby, Dick. in Moby Dick. Um. But there's no evidence of this, really. I think Melville visited the island and had heard of him. But like I said, this was a, a legend which spread around America. So mm. they would have been sort of celebrities. Um, he, he would happily talk about it with anyone. All of the men would. They all wanted to tell their story. Uh, again, that, you know, experiencing trauma, you just want to tell your story. Um, but no, there seems to be no evidence that he took any personal animosity towards Wales. Um and, you know, he wrote his book, he made some money and, and was a whaling captain in, in the good days before electricity. I was going to say, did he but then now, go back out to, like, whaling? Yeah, 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 Bloody yeah. Hell. Straight back out. Well, not straight back out, but you would tend to stay at home for nine months mm. and then and then you go back out again. But now Pollard's story is... Uh, is, is almost as... Well, it's, it's, it's sad, ultimately... He was given the captaincy of another ship. He met with the owners and they decided that, you know, he could be forgiven. This was a, an act of God. And uh, they would allow him to captain, uh, captain another ship. He gladly took the offer, but he always slept with a basket of fresh vegetables above his bed where he could see them. Always. And uh, he would gladly again tell his story. He was quite a liked captain, not a great captain, you know, well liked, but not particularly massively respected. Mm. And his ship ran aground. Mm. His ship ran aground. He was he was the worst thing that can happen to any sailor. He was now unlucky, and nobody ever permitted him to go on a ship again. Oh. Yeah. Although if someone said that to me, like, don't go on a ship again, I'd be quite happy because I (laughs) don't like the sea. I like looking at the sea. I like being on dry land. I don't like being Mm. on it or in it. Mm. Well, here's the thing that half of the guys on the ship, when it sailed out in these whaling ships, they were looking for work, you know. Mm. So most of these guys hadn't been in a ship either. So when I talked about the accident that happened four days into the voyage, most of the crew had spent the first four days vomiting and mm. begging to be sent back to the mainland. Dry land, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Pollard now became a night watchman, which was the lowest social rung in on the island. So essentially you just walk around and tell everyone to go home uh, <laughs> when it was curfew time. And there was a story that circulated the island where a tourist came to the island and said to him, "Have you? did you know 
Owen Coffin. And he responded, know him? Madam, I ate him. But, uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> but no, that, that's one of those stories that is like, anyone who knew him was like, no, that is total nonsense. Um, I want that uh, but to be he, true. I know, don't you? Madam, I ate him. Um, <laughs> I, I think no, you'll find. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll find. I, yeah. It's part of, it's part of my DNA it. now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, he, he was well liked about the island. The kids on the island all liked him. The teenagers all liked him because he was the guy that would come and break up parties and say, right, you know, off you go home. It's curfew time. Um, not paid well, but he was, you know, seen as this jolly guy, always really nice again, never swore. Um, his reputation after Chase's book come out suffered a little bit, never really recovered, especially after he became an unlucky sailor. Um but that was it then. Did the surviving chaps sort of keep in contact with each other, or was it kind of like we don't talk of this ever well, again? Well, we don't <laughs> to each other. I think. I mean, it's a really good question. Ultimately, we don't know. We've got three diaries uh, of this story. <laughs> they're all different. Yeah. They, well, yeah, they are. Yeah, they're they're all really different. But in you know, in sort of interpretation rather than than fact, mm. and and the book that. I've based all of my notes on is In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick. He says that in the 60s, someone discovered a diary and that, you know, that led him to, he'd always heard these stories, but that led him to write about it. So the odd thing about this story is that we know in detail only parts of the story. So like, we don't know, like what happened to the guys on the mainland? Did they just go back and like work in a factory in New York? Mm. Where, where was that your mad neighbour who claimed that he was attacked by a whale once? You know, we, we, we don't know anything about them. And of course, there, you know, there was no social security. I that don't was... know if you've seen the film um, Big Fish by Tim Burton. It's, uh, in a nutshell, it's a, this, this guy that tells all these like really elaborate stories of stuff oh, that's yes. happened to him. And oh, it's a beautiful movie, yeah, isn't it? And his he son was the is, big fish all along. Mm, yeah, and his son's yeah. just like, no, that never happened. Like, why are you making all these stories out? Yeah. And then right yeah. at the end, like, all the people that he'd spoken about throughout his life were there and they were yeah. true. So yeah. it's, um, yeah, it's fascinating to know, actually, with these, these, these tall tales that people tell. Actually, some of them are true. They might be slightly some fabricated. True. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. That's the image that sprung to my mind. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's just it's I, I th- it's obviously sad the the story, mm. but there's just something so like gripping about it. You know, just this almost every part of the story is just like you said earlier, almost unbelievable. You mm. know, it's a tale of survival, isn't it? As well, mm. Um, mm. and. L- l- like, what would you do in that situation? Yeah, yeah. And and I think what w- one part of the uh, story that that Philbrick, uh, this historian, didn't go into was that the theories of the boat that didn't make it. Now, of course, there was a huge amount of chance in being rescued, huge amount of chance. But also in the third rowboat was, weren't Nantucketers. They were men who didn't come from the same community, mm. And, you know, maybe there's something in there about about survival and that, you know, Chase, it, it appeared that they, they had more left in the tank. You know, they they caught up with this British ship and, you know, sailed up to it, were taken on board. Um, 
I mean, Pollard uh, and, and Ramsdale, who were on his boat, were, they were ours from death. So uh, you're right. It's a human story, almost about leadership as well, mm. you know, and there's something there about the psychology of community too. And the but, change but we'll of character as well. So uh, the, yeah. the, like, chase, the bully, the the sort of giving it the big I am, I guess, right at the beginning, a bit sort of narcissistic maybe, uh, mm. all of a sudden mm. realises that actually all that sort of pretentiousness needs to go if he wants mm. to survive and be loved and liked potentially if he was going to die. Do you know what I mean? Because they didn't know that they yeah. weren't going to die. So who yeah. wants to die being hated? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's but then a... also you've got mm. the... Sorry, just one last bit. Is that this... Whales could have attacked ships all the time, but they just never survived. Like the the skeletons in, in Henderson Island, those seven adults and one small child... Mm. who starved to death and they were all huddled their bodies their bones were all in positions of huddling together so that it starts to think then so we've got this one crazy story but how many other stories are there right there that we don't know of it's it really it's it just gets you thinking i, I love the story it's, yeah. it's phenomenal it's an amazing story now, a story that i i can't believe i've never heard before mm. um obviously mm. we all know the tale of like moby dick and stuff but you assume it's fiction Mm, mm. and not based on fact. It's absolutely incredible, an amazing story. Um, thank you so much for bringing it to me. Uh, I'm genuinely in oh, awe. Oh, you know what? <laughs> well, I'm just so pleased I got to tell it mm. because uh, before we come on, I was telling you that, you know, my, my friend's dad in America just lent me this book, geez, 15 years ago. And uh, this is a podcast. You can't see the book that I'm holding up, but it is falling apart. And I always, the number of times I've tried to tell my wife the story and she just gets fed up with my historical anecdotes. But I'm so pleased that I was able to share this story on, on a podcast and hopefully people have enjoyed it, you know? No, I, well, yeah, absolutely. I've definitely enjoyed it. Will you take a photo of that and send it to me, the book that's falling I apart? absolutely will. Wonderful. Yeah. And maybe I'll post it so the listeners can see it as well. Um that's massively interesting. Thanks so much, Paddy. That's been a really exciting lesson for me. And a macabre <laughs> one, you. which I very much love. Which you love. Yeah. Which you love. Yeah, well, listen, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we'll do something again soon. Um, absolutely. I'm not sure what, but we'll uh, we'll get to chatting. So You and I, of course, will do another episode in the coming week, so I look forward to that. Absolutely. All right, thanks again, Paddy. Thank you very much.